Hi, my name is Fritzi Horstman and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Brian Kane, and he is the founder of the nonprofit Social Profit Corrections, which is a nonprofit prison system um, geared to helping the incarcerated and the officers thrive in that environment. And so, of course, I was thrilled to talk with him and really find out about his vision. But we also talked about some of the issues uh, that prisons are facing today, um, the violence, the us versus them paradigm, um, the wellness of the correctional officers, solitary, and food, and other things that um, are really troubling in, in the prison environment. So. I really uh, hope you enjoy this talk as much as I did. I've been dying to talk to him for a few months now. And um, you know, keep your eye out for Brian and, and be sure to visit his website. He, and that'll be in the show, show notes. Um, so Brian's, Brian's bio is this. Brian Kane is the founder of Social Profit Corrections, a nonprofit organization uh, he has over 28 years of experience in the field of private corrections, serving in various leadership roles, including 14 years as a complex warden and warden at five separate facilities, managing contracts in partnership with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the United States Marshal Service, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, multiple states, detention and county jails. Uh, Mr. Kane has been instrumental in developing policies and processes that focus on resident change initiatives, security, and staff well-being and training. Mr. Kane is a proud veteran of the United States Marine Corps and the U.S. Army. I hope you listen in to this uh, episode. And Brian Kane, welcome to Compassion in Action. I am so impressed with your vision for social profit corrections. Your extensive uh, history being a warden for over 28 years, um, you've seen it all. And can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into being a warden and why you've decided that social profit corrections is the way forward? Richie, thanks for inviting me to your podcast and, and having me on today. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of an interesting question, you know, uh, you know, why corrections, you know, and I don't know that many people grow up as a child and say, I want to grow up to work in a prison. I don't think it's ever happened. Um, you know, so uh, it's kind of funny how life takes you in the direction. Uh, you know, corrections is a helping, caring field, or at least it's supposed to be, uh, you know, and um, I served in the Marines and then, you know, went to criminal justice degree and took a college class and learned about corrections and went, huh. Um, I think I, I think I would like that. Uh, you know, I think we could we could help our people. Um, you know, because those in the system, you know, um, you know, are have challenges. You know, and and uh, um, you know, having them come re come back into system all the time is really a bad idea. You know, what so what can I do to help? Yeah. Yes, and so you were in the military, and what I'm noticing is that um, the military and the corrections. Are, are kind of similar. They're structured similarly. There's lieutenants and captains. And one of my concerns is there's there's a war atmosphere. It's, it's trained for war. And I, I think a lot of the people in corrections, at least in the facilities that I've been, um, they're armored up, they're shut down, and people in prison are the enemy. 
So how do we how do we navigate this hierarchy of this military hierarchy and eliminate the enemy, the enemy within, which is everybody they're working with? The enemy within. I like it. Uh, and, and you're correct. I mean, it's the, uh, you know, in, in my, you know, in my 28 years of corrections, I was warden at five prisons across the United States, you know, um, and, you know, I managed every type of adult corrections and jurisdiction. So BOP, marshals, ICE, uh, multiple states, full service county jail, um, all adults, male, female, uh, high custody, low custody, I mean, the gamut. And one thing that's consistent um, with all those facilities to include the rest of facilities in our country is we have a, a very paramilitary culture, um, you know, and, and, you know, I was in the Marine Corps infantry, I was a commissioned officer in the army infantry. I get, I get military, um, you know, and the military clearly knows who their enemy is uh, when they're, when they're fighting a war. Uh, but unfortunately for corrections, um, for 245 years, it adopted a paramilitary philosophy, uh, you know, and, and no offense to the, to the, the founding fathers of corrections, you know, but um, that, that caused uh, a us versus them mentality, you know, in the military, you know, you're fighting in corrections, um, you know, the, unfortunately, the culture in many ways is the staff versus the population which is completely counterproductive um, because if we have an enemy, if we want to use that, that analogy, which isn't the best, but if we want to use it, the enemy's recidivism, it's not the, the people inside the system. So, uh, um, but I mean, the way I was brought up in corrections, the, the way I was trained, um, the way I was promoted for being good at was the, the paramilitary concept. Um, and I moved up the ranks pretty quick partly because I came from the military. I really understand what they were modeling and what they expected out of me. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, you know, but one thing I've learned is, uh, you know, um, the enemy is not the population. I mean, in all reality, the punishment is their restriction of freedom from the courts. Uh, it's not our job to punish them while they're in the system. Um, because all that does is, is produce recidivism. It reproduces a toxic culture. It produces you know, the lifespan of a correctional officer, 16 years less than the general public. I mean, that's just plain insanity. I mean, why is that? Um, you know, because there's so much conflict inside the, the fence, uh, you know, and in reality, you know, and I believe people are accountable for their actions. Um, but I believe in corrections, it's our job to prepare them for release to be good neighbors, you know, and the culture inside is not us versus them. It's us versus recidivism, which means help them, you know, so uh, you know, and when I say help, um, you know, at the correctional officer level, a lot of that, that means coaching. And I can get into that later if you'd like, but how that works. But yeah, our, our nonprofit model uh, is, you know, based off of uh, a philosophy that it's our responsibility to help them inside, um, you know, to make better choices than they've made in the past. Right, absolutely. I mean, it makes common sense. The thing about us versus them. And this is one of the things I've heard at in California is what happens on the yard stays in the yard. And that means the officers are their own band of brothers is and sisters. And they look out for each other. I've got your six, I've got your six, I think is what they say. Um, they're worried about each other's well-being first and foremost. And which I get, and I I'm I'm all for that. The thing about that is is when something happens, something goes wrong, 
they take it out on the people that are living there. When something goes wrong, um, you know, there's really no support for them as well as officers. They don't have support when something goes wrong, you know, you know, and I, I want to talk about moral injury in a second, but what do you have to say about that one? I mean, I would agree. It's kind of a self-preservation um, philosophy. I think it's no different, you know, for the staff, uh, you know, they protect each other, um, which is kind of a human nature response to stress and conflict, which isn't all that different is, you know, when, when the incarcerated person comes in the system, you know, why do they navigate to their race for protection? Um, I mean, for the most part, you know, and it's just, you know, I mean, you have to ask the question, why? Um, you know, number one, that's not healthy. Uh, number two, it, 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 you know, it causes an internal um, organization structure, even within the incarcerated people, where you have a leader of that race and that leader will tell you to do things that's counterproductive to reform and to you getting out and staying out in many cases. You know, uh, you know, so the question is why? I mean, it's, you know, the, the challenge is, is we have to identify root cause if we're going to fix this problem, and we will. But, it's, you know, we need to really touch the root cause of what, what is, is doing this. Is it, is it idle time? Yes. Um, is it a lack of opportunities uh, uh, for change initiatives? Absolutely. Is it lack of, 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 uh, of the staff caring about the population? Um, you know, yes. I mean, it's, you know, so you, you say all these things and, you know, the comes down to how do we fix it? I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a, a challenge that many, you know, have, have addressed, you know, and we have some really good leaders in our country right now that are passionate about helping, you know, but in many ways they're handcuffed um, through bureaucracy and, you know, and, and other challenges, but, you know, they're, they're really trying to do the right thing. I see it now more that I'm not a warden anymore. You know, as a warden, I'm, I was really focused on my facility you know, and of course I paid attention to what was going on around me, but at the end of the day, I was responsible for, for the lives with, within the, the prison that I was assigned to, um, you know, and so, uh, you know, it's, I, 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 I better can see now the passion of some of the leaders in our country that, you know, they're really trying to, to fix the problem, um, but it's hard. I mean, it's, it's not, it's been this way for 245 years. It's not like there's gonna be a, a light switch and say, okay, it's better. Uh, you know, we have to slowly move that culture away from the paramilitary, in my opinion, uh, you know, and uh, and allowing this this um, informal structure inside the fence uh, where those within the different races have power over others, you know, um, you know, and that's counterproductive to, to change and reform. Well, and also the officers have power over the incarcerated and mm -hmm. it's a power dynamic that and in it. If you ask me some of the things I've heard, it's a kangaroo court. So there's no accountability from the officers. They get punitive. They get they do what they want. They they write out rule regulation, rule violations. And the next thing you know, the person's in in solitary confinement for the next three years. And um, do you what do you think about solitary? I mean, that's one of what's one of my questions because I really think this is completely counterproductive to the goals of our society to have someone return to society whole and ready to be a contributing member of society. Yeah, well, three years is insane. I mean, um, I mean, that's, I mean, there's a, there's a trend in the country right now, uh, you know, really taking a, a, a hard look at restrictive housing um, is, is the term I, I use for it. But, 
it, it needs to be used on a, you know, only on an as need basis. And as a warden, I, I mean, I ran large prisons with maybe 15, 20 people in restrictive housing in total, and they weren't typically there a very long time. Um, it's just that, that you, you have to have a culture that's going to support them getting out. I mean, it's, you know, you, you have to move them in that direction and they can't be hopeless that they're going to be there forever. Now, if, if somebody murders somebody, um, they're going to be there for a while, uh, you know, especially through the proceedings of, of the, the, the criminal charges. Uh, you know, so, you know, how do you manage that in a way that it's not totally destructive to their mind? Um, you know, it's, you know, if you let them out and then they hurt somebody else, then you're liable. Uh, you know, so it's it's a hard, uh, you know, it, it's a hard challenge, you know, and, and for those that really don't understand restrictive housing, if you, if you look at a prison, it's a small city. Uh, we have our own police department, our own public works, our own cafeteria, our own high school, our own hospital, all within the fence. Uh, and you have restrictive housing, which is the jail within that community. Um, you know, it's just you have to be careful how you use that jail. Um, you know, just because two people get in a fight uh, over a microwave doesn't necessarily need to mean, mean that they have to go to restrictive housing. There may be a better way of managing that uh, versus put them in there. Uh, then it takes, you know, investigation takes a week or so. And then the investigation shows, oops, they didn't do anything wrong. Well, then you release them. Well, then they, <laughs> they just did seven plus days in, inside of restrictive housing. Um, you know, is there a way that, that that can be managed is number one. Number two, you know, there, there needs to be a, a, a better way to run it. You know, you know, 23 and one or 23 and, you know, you're in your cell by yourself or with a, a cellmate for 23 hours a day is really hard on somebody's mind. There, there, there's a better way um, where you still can restrict them from the population for their safety and for the population safety and get them some more out time, program time, uh, you know, recreation time. Um, I had an activity room uh, in restrictive housing where they could just go sit in there and watch movies by themselves, uh, but uh, you watch movies, you know, and, and a lot of people understand too, there, there's people that check into restrictive housing intentionally mm -hmm. uh, for like protective custody reasons, you know, and, and one of the challenges I ran into as a warden is getting them to get out. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I, I feel safe in here. I don't want to get out. I said, you've been in here for months. You can't stay in here. It's not healthy for you. Uh, you know, so what's the choice? I force them out. Um, I have to use force to get them out. Uh, you know, so, you know, and then you ask the questions, well, why do they not feel safe? You know, why would they want to stay in this environment? Uh, you know, and I've had many incarcerated people tell me they, they go to restrictive housing because it's a mini vacation from population. You know, so... Uh, you know, it, it's a complex problem. Clearly, it's an area that we need to work on in our country. Um, you know, there are those that say that needs to be abolished. I would tell you that's really a bad idea uh, because there are those that if you leave them out, they will hurt and hurt and hurt, uh, you know, and we can't allow that to happen. There has to be a place to go. Um, I would agree that it has to be really careful, scrutinized who you put in there, why, and then you need to program. You need to, um, you know, um, you know. There's dream programs. I have a friend that runs one that's incredible. Uh, there, uh, you have to give them more recreation time, fresh air, sunlight. You know, uh, while their proceedings are happening. Um, I think that the challenge is, is just there has to be a lot of scrutiny from the warden on down on who's in there and why to make sure we're using it as the very last resort. Yes, and what I've been learning about child development is serve and return is what parents do with their children. And 
adults need serve and return just as much as children do. They need to know, first of all, they need to know that their thoughts are not, they're not going crazy. And if you don't have someone to talk to, you don't have that, that uh, feedback loop. The other thing is just being, you can shackle them to a, a bench and have them talk, even though they're insane or they're violent, at least they're in, in, in a, in the company of other people. And I think that's, and as you say, programming and recreation, and we don't, I agree. We need to keep people safe. I, I don't think, you know, it's like, don't let someone run amok, but allow them to talk, allow them to inter interact. And um, one of the things um, that's I've been researching is a thing called moral injury, which happens, which is they had it in, they discovered it in the, in with wars, with war, with people coming home from war, um, what they've done to civilians, what they've done to their brothers by mistake. But, um, and it, it's actually from, from acting or not acting, not talking about what they've seen, what they've seen being done. And solitary to me is one of the places in prisons that, that can create a lot of moral injury for the, uh, for the officers. And this is, this isn't the important point I want to bring up is repeated um, occurrences of moral injury for an officer or for anyone can lead to a lack of empathy. And that's what I think we're dealing with in prisons right now is we have a lack of empathy and, and, and hardened souls. And it's because their, their real true morality is being, has been corrupted. Well, I, I agree. And I, I think that connects directly to the fact that their life expectancy is 59 years old when the general public is 75. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to explain to those that have never worked in the system, how challenging that environment can be sometimes. Um, yes. You know, it, it's, you know, when you're completely surrounded by violence all day, you know, and you turn into self-preservation, you know, um, I want to go home to my family today. Therefore, I'm going to make sure I'm going home to my family today. Uh, you know, and therefore I may treat people different than they should have been treated. Um, you know, and so, you know, it, it's a challenge and that's, you know, I, I keep going back to culture. It's the culture of corrections is the challenge. Officers should not be in an environment which causes their life expectancy to be 16 years less. That's just insane. Uh, recidivism at the level it is, is insane. You know, uh, you know, and when you look at our country's challenges and corrections right now, there's two of them, staffing, retention, crisis, recidivism. Now, of course, there's a lot of things in between that, but in general, um, those are the two major challenges I think that we have in front of us, and they're directly connected. Staffing, you know, if we can have staffing consistent, which means we have to fill all the slots, uh, you know, uh, they will be out better able to engage uh, in more of a coaching role for the population. I'm talking security, but a coaching role for the population. You know, in a football analogy, um, if you're an incarcerated person, you carry your own football. And you have to get to that end zone, which is release and don't come back. Uh, it's the correctional officer's responsibility. They can't carry the football for you. Um, they're not programs professionals, but they can be a coach on the side saying, come on, let's move the football forward. You know, uh, here's an opportunity for you. Let's take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, they can report to mental health. You know, this, this person is, is not doing well, um, you know, but if you don't have consistency with the officer ranks, you're not going to have the ability to uh, help uh, your coach, the population, move that football to the end zone. 
you know, and, and today, um, the staffing crisis, I can tell you programs with COVID the past year and a half has been very limited. Visitations, which are super healthy for everybody, is very limited, if at all. Uh, you know, and so, you know, this pandemic has really um, caused a challenge for the United States. And I would not do a recidivism study right now uh, based off of what's happening. I mean, I ran a 5,000 bed complex in the middle of COVID. Um, you know, my time, you know, to, to say that I was invested on change initiatives, although it was always in the back of my mind, my challenges every day is staffing the place. I, I, I need to make sure that the, the population is safe, safe. I can't do that if I don't staff it. And then if I don't staff it, uh, you know, and something happens, well, number one, it's harm, which is clearly not supposed is bad, uh, harm to the population or harm to the staff. Uh, but number two, I have to force people to stay. They can't go home to their daughter's recital. You know, they can't, you know, uh, I mean, I've seen people just cry uh, when, you know, when security leaders would say, sorry, you have to stay today. We don't have enough people. We had 10 call offs sick. We have, you know, 15 that are COVID. We have FMLA, you know, challenges. We already have this many vacancies. We have 10 slots to fill. I didn't have enough volunteers today. You, you three, sorry, you, you're going to have to stay because you're the next on the list. You know, and it's just... It's hard, and you know, and I know this isn't just a corrections problem. The United States is filled with staffing problems right now. But um, you know, and if if so, if we don't solve that that staffing issue, that inconsistency issue, people are in survival. They're not going to care. Um, you know, kind of go back to what you were saying. And not caring equals violence. Not caring equals recidivism. Not caring equals sexual assaults. You know, not caring equals I want to smuggle in more drugs and cell phones. Um, you know, so, you know, the, the staffing crisis is directly connected to the recidivism crisis, and we have to address the staffing crisis as quick as possible. You know, you know, there's so many people out there doing such creative, of, of uh, you know, um, initiatives to help with, to make that happen. But nationwide, we're still, you know, there's, there's state systems with 50% officer vacancies. You know, there's state systems that can't staff their maximum custody prisons. You know, um, you know, and so, you know, you know, recidivism for our nonprofit, our end goal is to significantly reduce recidivism or at least help our leaders move that direction. But we're moving towards helping with staffing right now because because I, I, I understand they're connected, even though the passion is reduce recidivism, um, you know, and help with that 16 year life expectancy of officers. But we have to staff the places first or we won't get to that direction. The other thing. Um about working double shifts or um, nobody's getting enough sleep. And if people get uh, 25 out, 24 hours without sleep, that's like having a blood alcohol level of 1.0 when 0.8 is the legal limit. So we're talking about people basically not being in their right minds, going to work, trying to be, uh, trying to create security and control, custody and control, which I mean, it's, it's dangerous to everybody. Not only um, are they not in the right mind, they're in survival mode, as you said, which means they're going to, they're in fight or flight. They're going to react before they have a time to get into their cortex, which is where good decisions are made. Um, and so what do you do about that? I understand. I mean, when I go to prison, I'm excited to go to prison and I would like that for every officer to feel like, God, I'm going to go to prison today and I'm going to change some lives, make people feel good about themselves and keep, get them on their way to success. And 
you know, I don't, you know, I see, I see disgruntled men and women standing there either doing nothing, which to me there that's idle time, just like the people in print, like the people living in prison. Um, so it's like, it's like a morale crisis and a health crisis for the officers, not to mention the PTSD. Sorry. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's COVID, you know, the, the, the system was extremely challenged before COVID and then COVID just, you know, uh, magnified the, the issues. Um, but you're right. I mean, uh, you know, we, we have to understand, you know, we have to take care of the people, the professionals in the fence, if we ever want to have a chance of changing the culture inside. And they need, they need to have purpose. I mean, you know, if a correctional officer goes home at the end of the day and they go to their wife or husband uh, or children or their family and say, whoo, today was a good day. Well, why is that? Well, I didn't get urine thrown on me. <laughs> or I didn't get assaulted. Or I didn't get mandated to stay and work overtime. Because I can guarantee you that's what's being said right now. They need to come home and say, uh, I had an incredible day today. My pod or my unit that I was assigned to, there's a, there's a gentleman who burnt a, a bridge with their daughter and I haven't talked to her in four years. And I've been encouraging him to, to reach out and mend that bridge. And last night he made that first phone call. Uh, you know, and he had the biggest smile this morning. He couldn't wait to see me. Uh, it was a really good day. I, I, but that's not what's happening. It's the, uh, a good day is defined by, I didn't get forced to stay and work overtime today, or I didn't get hurt or, uh, or the, the shift didn't, no one on the shift today got hurt or, you know, um, you know, and that's that purpose that I think is missing in our culture, uh, you know, cause, cause the system is designed to prepare people to be good citizens, you know, and, um, our system, unfortunately, in many ways makes people worse. They go inside, not better. So. And why is that? Why, you know, I, I think about when people are in receiving or whatever they call it, when they they're brought into the prison, they're strip searched and they're humiliated from the, the minute they walk in. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's some non-humiliating strip searches, but why do we treat people from the get-go like, you know, like they're pariahs, like they're, they have no value. They have no worth as a human. But I mean, I mean, there's within prison security trumps everything. So um, you know, the, 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 the purpose of all corrections is number one, protect the public, which means don't let them out until the courts say they're supposed to go. Uh, mm -hmm. number two is to protect the staff who work there and the population who lives there. So, um, you know, the, uh, the strip searches can be done in a humane way, but they're very necessary to be done. Um, I mean, I, I can't count the times where um, I had an uh, incarcerated person uh, get released on parole or what have you, go into the community, intentionally violate, knowing they're coming back inside uh, to bring in drugs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, and we found that on so many occasions. Now they, they place them in, in areas that you can't search, um, you know, uh, but it's necessary because there are times when they do the strip search, well, you'll find people that are bringing in contraband. Well, when contraband gets inside, whether it's narcotics or phones, uh, you know, or weapons or what have you, you know, that's a risk to number, you know, public safety, and it's a risk to the staff and the population. So although to the general public strip searches sound like the, you know, um, you know, why would you want to do that? Uh, you know, uh, dehumanize somebody, um, they really is necessary. So it's just a matter how do you do it? You know, you don't do it in the open, you, you know, clearly women can't see men being searched. 
Uh, it has to be done in a private environment. You know, uh, my experience as a warden, that, that always happened. I mean, we, we made sure that there wasn't, um, you know, an opportunity to humiliate somebody uh, to include the staff would explain why they're doing it, especially with somebody who's brand new to the system, you know, first time in, that's scary. Yes. Uh, you know, they don't really understand, um, you know, and, it, and it's the, the, the team's responsibility to help them, uh, prepare them, explain what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, um, really that they're going to be okay, um, if that's true, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, to help them through the process. So, you know, sometimes people that don't work in the system don't really understand why things are done, um, but there is a humane way to maintain that safety and security. No, I understood. I understood that contraband can come in orifices. The thing that it's the it's the dehumanization, and I think the officers don't understand that it also dehumanizes them to dehumanize another person. That's one of the that's one of the side effects of of acting out. And I think also when they go home to their families, I've heard many stories that they've changed. They're not the man that they were or the woman that they were when they walked in, like three or four years into it, they're violent with their families, they're drinking, they're, you know, this is this is a crisis and these people are in our community, you know, they're acting out, they're creating adverse childhood experiences with their kids, they're yelling at their kids, they're dehumanizing their kids. And this is the thing, this is, you know, no one really speaks about correctional officers or they're, they're kind of vilified in some instances, but, if we want prisons to be better, we got to work with the, the officers and the staff as well. Oh, absolutely. We will, we will never fix our, our challenges uh, with recidivism if we don't help the staff. I mean, it's just, they're the ones that are going to be the coaches for the population. They're the ones who can make sure they're safe. They're the, you know, they're the ones that, that are going to engage in a, a humane conversation, you know, encouraging people to do better. Uh, I mean, the divorce rate of correctional officers, 20%, I mean, I can go through metrics is 20% higher. The, the suicide rate of a correctional officer is up to 39% higher than a general. It's just a, it's, it's a challenge. Um, you know, and, and our leaders really need to ask the question, why, you know, what, what is causing that? Um, again, you know, having been a practitioner for a lot of years in very big violent prisons, um, you know, it's, you know, as a warden, I can tell you, nobody ever told me that their life expectancy of a, of a correctional officer was 16 years less. I didn't find that out until I started the nonprofit and I really started to, to dive into the challenges, you know, because I want to help. You know, we want to address root cause, uh, you know, to help the government become a more efficient, more humane system. Um, you know, and, and knowing what I know now, um, I share with every warden or every administrator that, that will listen to me. Uh, because it's, it's, it's important because they're the ones really are going to have to, they're going to have to make the difference. They're the leaders of the facilities. Uh, you know, so our concept is really, how do we help them? How do we educate them? You know, um, you know, and how do we move that, that culture in our country, um, which I refer to as the punishment model, which is completely dysfunctional and broken. How do we move that one to one of compassion, of caring, of reform, uh, of, of you know engaging in 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 professional type relationships that that allow for people to become good neighbors and productive members of society. Exactly, and well, I'm going to get to your uh, website, which I was it was like paradise reading paradise reading like a like a novel of paradise. Um, but the why is it that it's violent? I mean, I, my my sense is that. First of all, I'll say the most dangerous person on earth is a young man without hope. 
Um, and I believe that prisons are the land of hopelessness and it's enforced by the, the institution. It's all, but not just to, to take, to take it out on the officers and the wardens, it's condoned by the state and the governors and the federal, you know, the president, they, they say that this is how it should be run. Um, and there's a thing that, that say that, you know, you can't get close to an, an inmate quoting them because they'll take advantage of you. They'll take, they'll manipulate you. And so everyone is just never getting close to anybody. Nobody's having a humane discussion with each other. Um, and what is that, what is that training that you're going to get manipulated and does it happen that often? And have you gotten close to incarcerated people and have you, you been manipulated or what is that manipulation myth that I keep hearing? It, it, it's, it's the concern that, that somebody's going to be compromised by manipulation to bring in contraband, you know, and to compromise the security of the facility. That's the whole premise for it. Uh, you know, as a, a brand new officer, you know, the fear is that the, those in the population that are good at manipulating, and they're good, uh, many of them grew up on the street uh, with nothing and how they survive is by manipulating people to get something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the protections that have been built into the current culture is to, you know, to require the staff to be distant, not to engage in any relationships, not personal, which is bad, and not professional, uh, um, you know, which may be healthy uh, for everybody. But uh, so they, they have these, these policies, this culture that's been built in forever, uh, ever since I've been in corrections that don't allow that. You know, and, and, you know, now as a warden, I mean, I can see it from a mile away. I've been doing this a long time, you know, so I'm, I, and I taught programs as a warden, which is pretty unheard of. Um, but I was running a, a federal detention outside of Las Vegas, which was marshals. Uh, so the, these, these folks were all in the, in the, the, the process and sentencing and, you know, uh, for federal crimes and eventually going to the Bureau of Prisons, depending on the outcomes of their case. Uh, and many of the, the people I taught to was, was inner city. Um, and I taught PTSD, well, I didn't teach PTSD. I taught how to cope with it um, with, the, with our mental health professional. Clearly, I'm not a, a trained mental health person. Uh, but, um, you know, so I really, you know, you know engaged in, in deep conversations. Um, and to be honest, even though the intention was to address PTSD, they turned into more of a conversation with the warden about life. Um, you know, because they didn't really have access to the to the, the senior administrator, number one, number two, uh, you know, wardens are probably looked at as the enforcer. So, um, you know, I learned quite a bit about corrections just by my weekly one hour uh, sit down with the population talking about PTSD, you know, um, you know, and they talked about um, the system and how unfair it is. They talked uh, one of the one of the gentlemen and and all the races showed up for this. It's kind of funny. They all sat in little areas, and I had everyone in a big circle, um, you know. But there was a um, you know one that stood out was was a, an African American gentleman came from the streets of Las Vegas, and uh, uh, he was just convicted for murder. Um, you know, it was a gang related issue, and uh, I mean he was just uh, con- uh, sentenced, and he he showed up every week for our discussion, um, but he never said anything, you know, and I just kind of observed, you know, and I clearly, I wasn't going to force anybody to say anything. I wanted them just to be there to engage in conversation. And so we can talk about, and, you know, uh, one of the things that I did talk about is they said the system's unfair. 
And I acknowledge, I said, I agree. The system is definitely not fair. I said, but that's an advantage to you. You know, and they kind of look at me. I said, if you know the system's unfair, plan to compensate for it. You know, and so we talked through that. And this gentleman finally, uh, you know, looked up, you know, uh, in a room full of, I mean, there had to be 30 men inside of that room uh, with, with uh, our mental health staff. And he says, Warden, you don't get it. Um, I looked at him. I said, there's a good chance I don't. You know, and he goes, in my neighborhood, everybody goes to prison. Almost without exception. He goes, it's just a matter of time. You know, you know, and in our, you know, our thought, my thought is, you know, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have drugs. I'm going to have women. I'm going to you know, enjoy life because just, it's just a matter of time before I go to prison. Um, you know, uh, you know, so therefore, why bother? You know, why do the things you're saying? Uh, and this guy just got life. Um, you know, that doesn't mean he would be natural life, but I mean, he got a life sentence. So he's not going to get out for a very long time. Uh, and he started crying. Hmm in front of all these grown men, um, because he was hopeless. Uh, yeah. you know, um, you know, and I don't, uh, you know, what do you say to the guy? I mean, I, uh, I encouraged them, you know, that, um, you know, you can do good with the time that you have. I mean, you know, it's, I did the best I could to, to encourage him because he's looking at a lot of time. Uh, you can be a productive person, a good person within the system, you know, there, you know, and the Bureau of Prisons has some decent opportunities for that. Uh, you know, but the, the, you know, afterwards, the point that hit me hard was, you know, I mean, I didn't grow up with, I mean, I grew up poor. I mean, I didn't grow up with, with, with a lot of resources either. Um, you know, uh, you know, and I just try to put myself, could you imagine growing up in an environment where you knew you were going to prison? It was like, it was accepted. It was okay. Um, you know, and, and to conceptualize, you know, what that would look like, what would that feel like? Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, how do we help them while they're inside, which is my area of influence, uh, you know, and that was, that was impactful, um, you know, you know, and the, the room got really silent, um, a lot of head nodding uh, by all the races, you know, the, the you know, the, the blacks, the, the Hispanics and the, the whites, you know, they all could relate to what he was saying. Um, you know, I think that's a message that needs to get out of, of you know, we have to bring hope to prisons. Um, yes. Kind of funny. There is a there is an organization in Vegas called Hope for Prisons. It's done incredible work with John Ponder, but I mean we have to bring hope within the system. Uh, you know this 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 whole races separate uh, is completely unhealthy. This whole informal leadership structure within the incarcerated people ranks is completely unhealthy. Idle time is completely unhealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the the way staff are restricted from engaging in helping is completely unhealthy. So. Um, but that being said, there are solutions, you know, there are some really good leaders in our country moving in that direction. Uh, you know, and of course, our nonprofit, our purpose is to help them move that direction, um, you know, to be a proactive tool, you know, in their toolbox to make a difference with it, with our people. Yes, I want to read um, the landing page of your website. This is this is what I read. What if 100% of prison net revenues were reinvested into drug, alcohol, rehabilitation, on-site job training and education programs, accessible mental health and self-care treatment, mentorships, employee training, medical care, real-world re-entry assistance, with the single goal of creating a sustainable correctional model that truly reduces the rates of incarceration and recidivism? Is that a dream or is that's your vision? It's not a dream. It, it's, it's the vision. Um, and, and it can't happen. It will happen. It's the, you know, if you, 
allow me to kind of step into our business model philosophy here. Yeah. Um, you know, corrections, you know, um, corrections has a lot of built-in inefficiencies. Uh, you know, my background, I didn't say this earlier, but I worked for private corrections for 28 years. Um, you know, in, in private corrections, you know, you, you contract with the government to run a facility for them, you use business efficiencies to generate a profit. Uh, so, um, I mean, I, I will say that the, the company that I worked for was very ethical, well-led company. Um, you know, and I know there's a lot of, of lightning rods to private corrections. Uh, you know, um, but the reality is, is almost all the, the, the populations that came in would rather do time with us than others. The lessons I learned from that, though, is to, what if we took those efficiencies that, 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 you know, the general business principles use within corrections, but feed the, the, the benefit of those efficiencies back into the people. So, you know, you're not making a profit. We're a nonprofit. I mean, our purpose is only to help, but we can reinvest the benefit of those efficiencies back into the system. Uh, and efficiencies. You know, can you just explain what an efficiency is? Like, is that worse food or? Oh, no, um, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> in fact, that's a root cause problem. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about efficiencies, um, I mean, I can talk about food at a whole nother hour if, <laughs> if you want. Uh, but I'm talking about just bringing some business sense to how the, the facilities are run. You know, no, just not having waste. Now, that doesn't mean be inhumane. It doesn't mean not provide services. It means you just you just run the place with with some um, business sense to it. Uh, you know, for example, um, you know, you, you, you buy your supplies, the government has to use the government contracting procurement process. It's not the cheapest way to buy stuff. I think everybody knows that where if you're not government, you can, you, you, you can buy the same material uh, for a lot less. That's an example. Uh, you know, but there is a way to run a, a prison uh, cheaper than the government, significantly cheaper than the government. You know, so that's what we want to do with the nonprofit model and then just take the, the benefit of that and reinvest into the people, um, you know, to, for example, uh, if, if you have a GED waiting, you know, you, you have two teachers uh, on your list and they can handle 20 people to do GED, but then you have a backlog of 200 people waiting to get into the class. Uh, you know, we as a nonprofit, we can, we can reinvest the benefits of those efficiencies, the money and hire another teacher where other systems can't do that. Um, mental health is always a huge, huge challenge. Number one, you can't find people um, you know, to work in the prisons, which is another problem, uh, but they're very expensive. Um, you know, so you know, with our model, if we see an increased mental health caseload, we'll hire another mental health professional, but most systems won't do that. Uh, they can't, it's, you know, um, financially, it's to run a prison a good 70-ish percent of, of your budget is salary and wages. Yeah, so increasing increasing just one person, uh, although it might sound like a lot on the surface, it's significant. You know, so, you know, how, how do you manage that effectively, um, you know, is the key with the end result of taking care of our people. Uh, when I say that, I take, I'm talking about the officers, I'm talking about the staff, I'm talking about the population. You know, and so how do you use that, that funds that you have for the good of the facility and for the good of society. Yes, and so you also have a wellness program for the officers. Um, so what would that look like? Uh, you know, our vision, uh, again, we're going back to using the, the you know, money or the efficiencies off of running you know, the facility smartly, um, but several. Uh, you know, there, the, the mental health aspect of officers, one thing is 
you know, and, and I'd have to look up the metrics, but it shows that even though there are opportunities to help them, they just won't take advantage of those opportunities. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's looked as a weakness, right. which is very similar to our veterans too. Um, uh, you know, and so how do you encourage them to do that? It's, it's uh, you know, a daycare is always a problem. Um, when you work in corrections, uh, you know, finding night daycare, number one, is very expensive, but number two, sometimes it's almost impossible to find if you don't have a family member that can help you. Right. So now a correctional officer does their eight hour shift, they're a single parent. Now they get mandated to stay for another eight hours. Who's going to watch wow. their kids? Wow. You know, you know, so when we talk about wellness, we need to take the stress out of that, you know, and provide daycare opportunities for them, which we can do with a nonprofit model again, because we're not, worried. we're not there to, to make money uh, or to make anybody money. Uh, we're there to help and in, impact the, the people that are inside the fence. So if, if you get mandated to stay another eight hours, but you know that your, uh, your son or your daughter is okay, that's a lot less stress, you know, and stress is the, you know, I mean, again, I'm not a mental health trained professional, but the stress is I'm sure what causes 16 years uh, less lifespan, you know? Um, and so how do we reduce that? Uh, there's a, a texting platform that we use um, that sends uh, encouraging messages. Now they can't have phones inside the prison, um, but when they get out to go home, uh, you know, maybe a message that says, uh, you know, great job to officer so-and-so, the violence in their assigned pod was reduced by 20% last month. Oh. Wow. Uh, everyone's going to go, that's incredible. What are they doing? I want to do. Um, you know, so, I mean, I could go yes. on and on long, probably then your podcast should, you know, should go, but th there are a lot of initiatives to help the staff. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, as far as wellness activities, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's critical again, because if we don't resolve the retention problem, um, we won't resolve the recidivism problem. Exactly. But I believe that the retention problem is directly associated to viol the violence on the yard and in the prison. Um, it's, it's the long hours, but it's also the violence knowing that you might get killed at any day. Right. Yeah. It's, Statistically, be honest with you, prisons are safer than the street. But, but the the perception of of the violence, I think, is the worst. Um, I have twenty eight years. Uh, I was the head of security. Uh, I I ran all those tactical teams that you were talking about with the suits. Uh, you know, hundreds of them. Um, I mean, I I responded to riots, to hostages. I mean, I was the guy who fixed the problems. I've never been hurt, not a single time. You know, um, and I've been in some really <laughs> situations. Uh, you know, so um, I think the threat that violence could happen is definitely a stress, you know, mechanism. Um, it's, you know, there are, you know, and I know you're more exposed to California. Um, I mean, there are systems that are not as challenging. Yes. Um, I mean, I ran California contracts uh, when I ran a prison in Arizona. So, I mean, I, I get the California um, um, concept and philosophy and they're really in a hard place, um, you know, and so the threat of violence, you know, like you said earlier, kind of pushes them back away from the population into self-preservation. Right. right. Um, you know, and that's hard. I mean, it's, could you imagine every day, you know, um, you know, I could, I could tell you stories. Uh, I was the chief of security of a prison in Ohio. We had all of Washington, DC, uh, their worst, their worst population. They shut down Lorton. Which was, a, which was a max long-term segregation facility, put them on a bus and sent them to us. Most of these men have never been out of segregation for years. Wow. And we had them in general population. You know, 
And I was the chief of security. So I would walk in those pods every day and get surrounded. Um, you know, and I, I remember driving home, uh, almost shaking, uh, you know, I could have died today. Uh, you know, and I said that all the time, uh, and I was the head of security. Could you imagine an officer, you know, I could walk into the, the unit, deal with the issues and I got to leave. Could you imagine an officer that had to be in there all day, all the time. Um, yeah, it, it, it's hard. Um, you know, and, and that stress, uh, we have to resolve that. We have to address that. Um, you know, and there's ways to do that. So, uh, um, yeah. And um, just a comment on Cal the California system. There's $16 billion a year in our budget. Half of that goes to pensions. Imagine if we didn't have to pay all the pensions or if that we could increase the budget so that some of that could go to things such as food. Can you just elaborate a little bit on why that's a root cause and why that's such an important piece of, of prison reform? Absolutely. I, I think if you, we can put food, uh, the, the food operations and commissary all into kind of the same group, you know, it's, it's very expensive to run prisons. I mean, it's, if you look at the, the government line item in most states, corrections is either number one or two, mm -hmm. most expensive. Uh, you know, and so when you're trying to cut costs, you know, when you have a line item that's at the top of the list, you find opportunities to cut costs. Um, you know, there are our systems, you know, they pay anywhere from two to four dollars a day for food. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine what type of food you'd get with two dollars or four dollars for that matter? Um, you know, you know, and so what happens is they end up serving um, processed carbs because they're the cheapest. Uh, they, 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 they take shortcuts on, on how, what service, what food is served because it cut, they're trying to cut cost. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, your mind is a reflection of what you put in your body, you know, and, and if you don't get fresh vegetables, uh, you know, and, and fresh food, uh, you know, which costs more than $2 a day, um, you're, you're gonna have a hard time. Um, you know, then you have to fall back on commissary uh, which is very expensive, absorbently expensive. In fact, you talked about that yesterday on your, on your uh, presentation. Um, you know, and then they don't offer anything healthy anyway. Uh, it's all Twinkies and Ho-Hos and ramen noodles. Um, I'm being a little probably sarcastic there, but, but it's not very healthy food. And then it's very expensive. You know, so now we, we take the poorest of our society, which are incarcerated. <laughs> we, we serve food, you know, three meals a day, which... Um, may not be desirable, um, especially if, if you have any medical issues and, you know, uh, or, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to um, change or reform. And then, so then you go to commissary, well, then your family has to spend you money uh, in, um, which they don't have money in the first place to buy this exorbitantly expensive food out of commissary in order to compensate for the food that's served in food service. Um, it's just not healthy. So, you know. And why, why is commissary so expensive? Why is, the ramen noodles 50 cents in prison when it's 10 cents at Costco. I just want to understand the economics because it makes no sense to me why we're um, where we're punishing the poor once again. I mean, most commissaries are run by private business for profit. So um, I guess you can you can connect the dots there. They're making money. Uh, there is there is, you know, I don't know that I can get completely into the monetary aspect of it only, but to, to tell you um, they need to be run at cost, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but you typically don't see that. Now I will say there are systems that do do that. Um, I, the majority don't, 
you know, so many times what the government will do is they will contract out certain portions of the operation so that they don't have to run it. Um, you know, and in some ways, in some places, they will actually save money by contracting with for-profit companies. Uh, uh, you know, so if a for-profit company is running your commissary, they're for-profit, you know, they're, they're going to make money, you know, uh, you know, and so, you know, the, the nature of the beast is they have to compensate. Now, you have to pay for the staff that run, typically the, the funds gained in commissary have to pay for the staff that work in there. Well, the staff are expensive. Uh, like we were talking about earlier. So, you know, the, the cost of commissary many, in many ways, you know, has to compensate for the, the, the free world staff that work there and the, the, the incarcerated people that work there also. Well, that's another issue is they don't get paid very much. But, but you know, so that the dynamics of, of the operations have to make sure it compensates for all of that. And it's a small market. It's not like it's a Walmart, you know, where they're getting millions of people and dollars coming in there. They have maybe 800, depending on the size facility. Well, in California, we have almost 100,000 people incarcerated, so it's a pretty big market. And I also want to say Costco makes money. They're not they're making a profit. So somehow there's a big discrepancy because we can buy in bulk. If we're in California, we can buy a lot of soup, probably more than Costco could ever imagine buying. And 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 yet we're not we're not taking care of the people and the families as we really really taking a who are really getting you know stabbed in the back here um but i'm I, I didn't think about the personnel and that's an interesting thing but i would i could say that you know it could be one supervisor and everything everybody else being incarcerated because i'm sure they'd love to work in the commissary some access to food but sorry i don't mean to digress but you know food upset i think everybody's obsessed with food and thinking about prison food is something i always think about is like how can how can we do this but it's a root cause, you say. It's a root cause of disgruntled, yeah, of people not feeling treated humanely. Yeah. Easy way to measure it is ask this, how many of the staff if they eat at the facility. It's free food for them. So ask them how many they eat. If they all say no, that right there is the reflection. Um, but with our business model, uh, again, we're, we're not profit motivated. You know, we'll, we'll run commissary at cost. Um, you know, you know, and plus we'll offer healthy options um, you know, it's a little harder to do that because they expire quicker, um, like bananas on the shelf aren't going to last for many days, uh, you know, but, the, you know, there are ways we can bring healthy food into, into the options, uh, again, because we're not, we're not motivated by making money, we're not motivated by the profit, we're just motivated by helping people. So when can we expect uh, the first social profit corrections facility? I mean, we, it seems like this is imperative that this happened. This is, this is utopia, if you ask me. Well, um, as with any startup new concept, there's a lot of, of marketing, there's a lot of uh, educating, you know, and showing people that there, there's another option. Um, in the United States, there's 2.2 million people incarcerated. Uh, of, of those 2.2 million people, 92% of them are, are managed by the government. Okay. Right. 8% are managed by private corrections. And many of those 8% of privates are actually immigration um, beds, which have nothing to do really with recidivism because most of them get deported back to their, their country. Now there's a third option uh, called nonprofit corrections. So, you know, we are such a new, you know, and there, there are leaders that go a nonprofit running a prison or nonprofit supposed to run goodwill and, and, and Red Cross. So it's kind of a philosophy uh, change, uh, you know, and so we're working on educating 
and supporting. Again, there are so many good people in our country trying to do the right thing. We just want to be part of that proactive tool in their toolbox, uh, you know, to help them. I mean, our, our end vision is to do reentry facilities, you know, prisons too. But if we, if we can, one of the challenges, if we can get those that are about a year or maybe two years from being released and mm. put them in our facility, we can deprogram them, deinstitutionalize them. Um, you know, uh, like when I came out of the Marines and I start, took a job in the civilian world, I almost got fired many times over because I didn't understand the culture difference between the military, you know, and civilian corrections in this case. Um, you know, those in the system are de need to be deinstitutionalized. I mean, they've been told when to stand, when to eat, when to call, when to go to school. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're completely structured, um, you know, and then to say, okay, congratulations, your time is done, you know, go to the free world and they walk out and they go, uh, uh, I don't know how to use a cell phone. I don't know how to use a smartphone. I don't know how to use the internet. I still think I get a job on the classified ads. Um, you know, so we want to provide an opportunity if we can take those coming out of the system, um, you know, allow us to help them within the last year, deinstitutionalize them, really get them ready for the free world, get their housing taken care of, get their driver's license, their social security card. Uh, you know, many ways, those that come from Mexico, they need their papers too, because they take the, the papers when they come across the border. So now they're not legal in our country and they're not legal in their country. You know, how to, you know, we have to help them so that um, when they step out the door, uh, they have money in their bank account because our, our principle is we want to pay them. Economic-wise, it'd be difficult to pay them minimum wage unless the taxpayers want to pay for that, and they don't. Um, you know, how do we put a structure inside where they get a decent amount of money for working, where they can take half that and put it in savings? So when they step out the door, they have enough money to at least get home and get started, uh, which is another root cause. Um, you know, so the, the, the hope is that if, if we could get that facility where um, they're coming out, we can help them prepare for the free world. And then we would see a huge reduction in recidivism just based off of that. Um, so and that's just one of many, uh, you know, projects we have in mind to help. But again, we are a resource for our government leaders. You know, we, our purpose is to help them. Um, you know, and there's so many out there that have huge hearts that want to do the right thing. They're just challenged with their systems. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I think, I think it's brave people like you thinking outside the box, literally, or that's outside the gates to really bring in this innovation and, and possibility. Um, we got, we don't have time because people in there are suffering and they're without hope. Um, is there anything else you want to tell the audience that we need to know about your work or what we should look forward to or what we should look out for? Um, I, I would just encourage everyone to take a look at our website, you know, spcor.org, social profit corrections. Um, you know, you know, look at what we're doing, um, you know, and give us feedback. I mean, do you like it? Do you dislike it? If you dislike it, why? Uh, you know, um, we have a lot of returned citizens on our team too. So, you know, uh, you know, we have a very diverse perspective of, of how we solve the problem or how we help our government leaders, uh, you know, move the culture away from the punishment model. So, you know, take a look. Um, we're moving into a fundraising mode as a nonprofit. Uh, we're going to need some help to get established. So keep an eye out for, uh, you know, kind of a GoFundMe uh, initiative, um, you, know, you know, so that we can, one of the challenges is we need, we need lobbyists. We need, you know, nothing's going to happen unless the government decision makers decide this is a good idea. 
uh, you know, so how do we reach the governor's offices? How do we reach uh, White, you know, the White House, uh, you know, the, the administration? How do we reach, you know, the, the county boards, you know, for the local jails and the sheriffs? Um, you know, so uh, part of the challenge is just getting the word out, you know, hey, we exist. Um, you know, we are a solution for you. Uh, you know, we, we can definitely reduce the lifespan problems of the officers. It's all culture based. In fact, we have a one of the things we're marking right now is purely a correctional officer retention solution. That's it. Um, because again, officer retention and recidivism are corrected. We, we will never fix recidivism if we don't engage the officers and keep consistency within the officer ranks. So we're presenting, actually, we just started last week, um, you know, presenting, we can help you uh, change the culture inside the fence, which is going to retain staff, which is a very innovative idea. It doesn't exist in the United States. Um, the UK, you know, penal reform solutions, Dr. Sarah Lewis does some of this in the UK, and she's been quite successful. So uh, in, in true corrections manner, we're, we're stealing good ideas, <laughs> uh, you know, modifying them to meet our culture in our country. So just be supportive, pass the word on we exist. Um, you know, we're here to help all people, uh, the professionals, the incarcerated people and society. Um, you know, we also want, want to reduce having uh, new victims and how that happens is by not having recidivism. Uh, you know, so, you know, help us with the solution. Uh, you know, our, our heart and soul is purely into uh, reforming corrections. And if you had to pick a state, where, what state would you start in? Wow. Um, that's a, that's, a, that's a bold question. Uh, th there are many states. I mean, most states need help. Um, I mean, Arizona, my home state, I think has a lot of opportunity. They're also contract friendly because they have lots of private corrections here. Uh, I think Nevada has opportunity. Um, you know, they, they have some strong corrections challenges. Uh, it's against the law for private corrections to operate in Nevada, but we're not private. We're nonprofit, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, so we can help. Um, I think New York, you know, and I don't have the connections in New York uh, with Rikers. Um, um, and one thing I've learned through this, through this growing process, you know, uh, running a, a prison is difficult, <laughs> but starting a company and changing the culture of the United States is, work, is more difficult. And one thing I've learned, it's, it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. So, you know, uh, if, if we can make the introductions, again, we're just here to help. Um, last week, I made, I made a connection in, you know, and this is going to be outside the United States box, but in Africa, uh, you know, they're intrigued by the idea of running a facility as a nonprofit. We're the first of its kind and not in the United States in the world. They're like, what are you doing? You know, um, you know, I explained it to them. They said, wow, uh, we've never heard of that before. I said, it's because it's never existed before. So, you know, not that, you know, I, I, my focus is the United States because we clearly have enough challenges here. But if we can help outside the United States, um, you know, um, and we wouldn't say no to those opportunities either. So, No, we won't say no. We're, we say yes. Yes, more of Brian Kane and his brilliant mind and his brilliant vision. It's, it's, it's not, um, and I thank you for that, but it, there are so many people passionate about the same thing. I was just the, the one brave enough to, to step off the cliff uh, well, with the credentials, um, you know, to make this happen. So um, end of the day, when my time is done, no one's gonna remember Brian Kane, uh, but what they will remember is what we've done for our people. Uh, and that's what's important. Well, Brian Kane, thank you so much for your time at Compassion in Action. And um, I hope to bring you back when you have some new news to tell us and um, keep our audience posted on your 
incredible vision and hopefully incredible achievements. Well, Richie, you're an angel. Appreciate you uh, allowing me the time to talk to your audience today. Um, together, we can make a difference. So thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Kane, founder of Social Profit Corrections. Uh, as usual, please subscribe, comment, like, and share this podcast. And if you haven't done so, please visit our website, CompassionPrisonProject.org. Um, sign up to volunteer, donate, and get to know what we're up to. And if you haven't seen Step Inside the Circle, please take a look. It's on the landing page of the website. Thank you again for listening and watching, and I'll see you next time.